0: and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore and we got our mixer hooked up. We're back and this is almost like being together in person. Um, We're very excited. I don't know listeners if you care at all but uh, for us we're we're very excited about this. I'm joined as I am every week by Bailey Perkins. Hello.
1: Hello Andy. Hey guys.
0: And also by Scott Melson. Hello sir.
2: What's up dude? Hey just to celebrate the mixer can I get a sad trombone?
1: i'm
0: gonna have to label these before next week because i'll forget where i signed sad trombone is my jam
1: it really does feel like old times
0: (laughs) so many times in the past year could we have used a sad trombone i think
2: (laughs) in the events of the last 12 months we've changed our theme music and it's just sad trombone. trombone (laughs) <laughs> all right. Well, this
0: week, um, man, it's we are in full swing, full legislative swing. I s- sat here in the comfort of my home and watched the legislative session for several days this week. Um, and and it was almost like being there without all the disease. Um, and I can be unmasked in my own home, which is a nice, I think it's a nice upgrade over the Capitol. It's a perk. It's a perk. That's right. So um, I guess Let's talk about some of the things that came out this week that were notable. For one, I'll start with that the governor signed the first bill already. Uh, this is it's uh, Senate Bill ten thirty one or thirteen oh one. I should know. It's uh, but it deals with the Open Meeting Act. Uh, and so, listeners, as you know, I also wear the hat of being the director of Freedom of Information, Oklahoma. This is a issue that we care about a great deal, and we've been. In talks with members of the legislature about well, for it seems like decades now, but they passed back in the spring Senate Bill six sixty one, which basically both bills allow for virtual meetings because we don't we didn't have that in the law to begin with. Uh, so private organizations can meet virtually if you'd like. If your business uses it, you're not breaking the law. However, for public entities, government entities, publicly funded entities they were disallowed or just not permitted. It wasn't forbidden. It just, there was no allowance for it because the laws were written before technology existed. And we needed to addend them to allow groups to continue to meet during the pandemic. And they did it in the spring, but they set it to expire in November. I think because in the spring, we all thought this was gonna blow over, right? We thought surely by the fall, everyone, it'll be gone. Summertime, the sun will cook it out of the earth. And that's not what happened at all. Well, And the
1: vaccine was promised to be ready by November. But
0: yeah, but there's so many things. I mean, every event like, well, we'll cancel. Like everything from the spring got punted to the fall. And then it got like, we'll just reschedule it for like three months down the road. Because we didn't want to deal with the idea that things would be going on. As it turns out, things were way worse in the fall. It was way worse. And so we... Uh, then, so we had a period from November until, uh, the 10th of this month until Wednesday where public bodies could not meet virtually. They had to meet in person, um, lest they violate the law
2: and, or, or. Or they don't meet at all, right? <clears throat> so like, I sit on a state board that hasn't met for several several months because we don't because we couldn't have a quorum, right? Like, so in order for these boards to meet, you have to have a quorum. The only way you can have a quorum is to meet in person. The particular board that I sit on is made up of mostly healthcare professionals and people in related fields. Where like, and every month it's like, hey, so so do we want to get the twenty-two of us together in the conference room and meet this month? And it's like, nah, bro, like I'm not going, <laughs> you know. And so and so you couldn't ever so there's so it's 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 important to note that there is work that has that needs to be done that has not been able to be done because these boards and governing bodies and commissions and councils and all these little entities that do so much work of government in Oklahoma haven't been able to meet so it's it sounds like a small thing to say that like oh we can go back to virtual meetings but like there is a lot of governance and policy that that hasn't been taking place that's going to get picked back up now because we have these safety precautions in place. So it's a it's a it's a really big deal. And I think it's, um, you know, I wish it had been done earlier, but props to Senator Treat from this uh, uh, pro tem Treat from the Senate who carried the bill. Uh, props to getting it through the House with only like four people like voting against it, I think. Um, and. I mean, I don't say it a lot, but props to Governor Stitt for signing the bill and uh, uh, getting getting us back on, back
1: on track. That was one of their commitments over the past few months when they were talking about gearing up for legislative session that they were going to prioritize getting that bill to the governor's desk among the first priorities for session, and they delivered on that. Uh, I get emails from the city of Oklahoma City and I saw that they had quickly put together. Our, we're going into virtual meetings, and here's the the information on how to tune in and following what's going on with your city. And so it's going to lead to a more accessible and inclusive and transparent governmental systems and processes as well. So it's a good thing.
0: Yeah, Scott, I, do you guys are you gonna have like a, just an enormous agenda at your next meeting? Is that what's going to happen?
2: uh yeah there's there's gonna be a lot a lot to do just block off the weekend yeah right i mean no it's hard so we'll we'll meet uh we'll meet this week um and it's it's gonna be a big one i think when the
0: big one comes all right well so that's a big news for the state and that's a good thing. It's nice to have a really positive bill be the first one signed. So often it's something to do with guns or abortion, and this is one that actually benefits all Oklahomans.
2: And I think the chances of a lawsuit for this on constitutional grounds are relatively low, which is also um, n- unusual for the first bill of the Oklahoma legislature.
0: This is also very true.
2: Speaking of lawsuits though, uh,
0: Scott, let's talk about managed care because the w- w- I think we talked about it last week some, right? That they had basically passed this, but this week, a lawsuit was filed just yesterday.
2: Yeah. So it's in this, this gets like real confusing, but essentially the state of play <clears throat> is that Oklahoma, just for to catch up anybody who's tuning in for the first time. So Oklahoma has, uh, like all states, we have a Medicaid program. Our Medicaid program is called Sooner Care. Right now, sooner care is administered by something called the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority, which contracts with providers, meaning doctors, hospitals, therapists, etc., to provide services to uh, sooner care beneficiaries the same way that like you would from another insurance company, right? But instead of an insurance company, it's the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority via this program called Sooner Care. Governor Stitt um, was staunchly opposed, as we know, to Medicaid expansion, sooner care expansion, which um, the Oklahoma voters approved uh, a couple couple election cycles ago, and that will take effect this summer. So because we approved sooner care expansion, the governor's kind of next step was to say, okay, well, what we want to do to control costs, and I'm using air quotes there, is implement something called managed Medicaid. Or managed sooner care. So what this means is that rather than uh, doctors and other healthcare providers contracting directly with sooner care, there will be outside insurance companies who uh, administer these benefits. Right, and the, and the idea as seems to be the case always is, oh, well there must be lots of fraud and waste and abuse and other terrible things. And so if we contract this outside company, they'll root out all those inefficiencies and they can give us the same benefit at less cost. It'll be less cost to the taxpayers. And then the the money that's like quote unquote left over the outside company can, can, can profit from it's like the whole market-based like theory, which, you know, fine, I guess for like maybe other things, I don't know. But, um, healthcare providers, for the most part, and this is not just doctors, this is doctors, hospitals, etc., are really opposed to this. It got complicated because the governor asked the healthcare authority to, and I asked also as I air quotes here, asked the healthcare authority to submit a budget proposal, which essentially requests that the vast majority of their budget be reappropriated to go toward managed Medicaid, Rather than the traditional fee for services, fee for service delivery system that we use now. The healthcare authority board, in kind of a dramatic fashion, voted to do just that. So, what we have now is the governor pushing for this change to the way we have Medicaid in Oklahoma. You have the board of the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority endorsing that on a divided vote, but making that a part of their budget request. Enter the Oklahoma Legislature because there are several people in the Oklahoma Legislature who are like one. Um, it's not entirely clear that you have the authority to do that. Number two, um, number two, uh, we have to appropriate the funds for this, right? So, like, you can say this is what you want to do, but if we appropriate funds in such a way that says you can't do it, you can't do it. And one of the chief, uh, or one group at least, that are the chief opponents of this are the hospital association on behalf of rural hospitals, because they argue, I think correctly, that this would be very devastating to rural hospitals, which in many small towns are the largest employer. So you actually have an interesting bipartisan coalition in both chambers where there's, there's like a lot of opposition to this. And so what's not clear is whether the legislature is going to fund Medicaid uh Privatization, as some of us call it, um, so that's not clear. But the other thing is that there is, I guess, and this is where I'm getting out of my area of, of expertise and into something I don't know as much about, apparently there is some case law that suggests maybe the board and the governor don't really have the authority to do this in the way that they did it. And so the Oklahoma State Medical Association, Dental Association, Hospital Association, and some other healthcare groups filed a lawsuit this week, and the lawsuit, I don't know. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's like an injunction or a, you know, there's lots of very fancy lawyer terms that that you can use when you're wanting a court to like say people can't do something. I don't know what the apropos term is, but they're basically asking a court to step in and say, hey, like this can't move forward for the time being until some of these issues get sorted out. So I was hoping that was going to be like a 30 second summary, and it ended up being like a 20 minute summary. But that's the state of play. I think you did a good job of trying to summarize a complicated
0: situation into as few words as possible. Um, But yeah, all eyes will be on this. This is certainly not the first lawsuit that we've seen um, against something the governor has done. It certainly won't be the last either. And, uh, you know, the Tulsa world has a story that I'll put in the show notes, um, uh, and we may talk about the bill in just a minute, but there's a bunch of bills this year that are Reining in executive power, right? Like trying to say, you can't do this. And it was, I mean, everything from who the state can contract with to, you know, what the governor can do to change election laws in the the state of emergency, which is what happened last year. um, And lots of pushback. And I think we talked about this last week, right? Where in his first year, it was like, you can have more power. You can appoint agency heads. And we said, you know, that might not work out so well. And then here it is in year three where they're like, uh, actually, let's you can't do any of that stuff. We can bring it back to us. So
1: I mean, and, and even in reflection from, you know, almost around this time last year, heads were scratching about that's a lot of power to relinquish as a legislative body. And so, with all of the the mishaps and missteps, and even, you know, we're going to move an entire health agency to another city, like I think the legislature is learning its lesson about the necessities and importance for uh, those balances of power to ensure that checks and balances aren't in place to not have confusion or have things that happen that um, supersede the power of the legislature because it's almost like, they allowed this to happen by giving up that amount of power, um, and I was listening to some some former lawmakers who were saying that they were scratching their heads trying to figure out why would why would they do that. And so I think the legislature is learning its lesson going forward, and so it'll be interesting to see which of those bills move through the process, and 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 will they even get signed into law by the governor? Because uh, it, it looks like the, the legislature has veto power just within its. Authority, But I also think that there's bipartisan agreement that the executive shouldn't have that amount of power. So I'm pretty sure that whatever bills related to that, that move through the process, they'll probably likely get a um, uh, what's the term? Why is my mind overwritten? Yes. Veto override. Well,
0: and that's interesting. I mean, I think under Governor Fallon, she was she did not have a particularly strong executive branch reach right like she for the most part played pretty nice with the legislature governor stitt is a different type of leader and he's been pretty aggressive in what his intent was and what he hoped to do with his powers and so to see the legislature be like hang on man like this is this is our stuff we're going to bring it back and i mean on the other end we mentioned this last week too you know there's a number of bills to deal with the uh, initiative petition process and direct democracy allowing voters like all of us to get together and pass a law like medicaid expansion like medical marijuana like criminal justice reform like independent redistricting like all of these things and the legislature is trying to clamp down on that and so you see the legislature trying to stop anybody else outside the executive branch the the people you know if they can find a way to block the court from intervening they in fact they they have a bill about election law that would both forbid the governor and the courts from doing anything with elections and i was like isn't that a scott and i you texted
2: about this isn't this like a checks and balances issue um it's like dude i don't dude, are our legislatures allowed to like determine what is and is not justiciable it seems like that's a constitutional thing. And like, that's what like Supreme courts do. But I mean, again, as I say, at least twice every week, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I don't play one on TV. So maybe legislatures can do that. I don't know.
1: Well, Andy, you're raising a great point. I didn't even think about it from the lens of how the legislature in a lot of different ways over the past two years has lost a lot of power to control what decisions are made.
2: Have they lost it or have they given it up? yeah they, they give it away they give it away because they thought so i think when governor stitt was elected the thought was that they were all going to be on the same page about some sort about some things um and then as they kind of got into it and as governor stitt started seeing what the limits of his office were and weren't and as the legislature saw how far he was going to push his authority in some areas it became clear that i mean just you know It sounds like it sounds great, like, oh, we've got a 75 25 majority in both houses and the governorship. We can do whatever we want. But when you have a majority that big, there's probably going to be lots of factions within it, and they're not all going to be on the same page in every issue.
1: Well, and my comment wasn't just about the legislature losing power between the legislature versus the executive branch. I'm even saying, among, to Andy's point, the state questions that have been passed and other ways that policy is getting made around the legislature. So, even thinking about that content, I mean, that context, that makes a lot of sense that the the legislature is trying to find different ways to pull back its power and its reign because it's looking mighty ineffective. (laughs) If the governor's able to make policy, the people are able to make policy, and you're not, getting that from the legislature the way that you expect.
0: Well, and I think on the whole, what we really see or what I hope that we really see is evidence of the many layers of checks and balances in our democratic government, right? Small D democratic, where we have the executive branch, we have the judicial branch, we have the uh, legislative branch, we have the people and on any given issue, Two or three or four of those are are involved, right? So with this particular bill, just as a what-if scenario, the legislature could pass a bill that would limit the executive power and the judicial power over changing how elections function or something. It goes to the governor to be signed. He might not like it. He could veto it. It goes back to the legislature. They presumably have the votes to override the veto and then put perhaps the people file a lawsuit and it goes to the Supreme court to decide. And then it's like, well, does the court have the authority to decide a law that limits the court's power? Oh, you know, and it's like a very complicated, thing. and this is why we should have civics education back in schools because this shit is complicated. <laughs> we,
2: the legislatures, of, we, the, we the legislators of Oklahoma hereby decree that no court is allowed to overturn any law that we pass because, We said so. This is like uh, the rules of Calvin Ball from Calvin
0: and Hobbes, where he just makes it up for every game, and and he's always right. That's the way.
2: (laughs) I mean, you know, it, it, it it is interesting, like how how reluctant legislators are to give up any power. It's also interesting how. Um, reluctant legislators are to pass any laws that require them to do stuff that they don't really want to do. Uh, There was a bill this week sponsored by a friend of the show, Senator Julia Kurt, that would require uh, legislators to uh, take two hours a year of ethics training and classes. Like two hours a year. Died in committee,
1: seven to three. Well, and the reason that's important is because When it comes to ethics laws and when it comes to uh, ethics requirements, there's constant changes each year that the lawmakers have to understand. Otherwise, they can be fined or they can be reprimanded in different ways. So one of the issues that were coming up from last session into this session um, was about whether or not lawmakers can receive signed books that are perceived as valuable. Um, and so there was a lot of conversation about what does that mean even for someone to provide general information to lawmakers and where the lines are on that. And so, if lawmakers aren't attuned to what the rules state on that, they could be violating ethics laws. And so, even for covering their own behind, it's important to have time to understand how to interpret ethics laws to make sure that they're abiding by them. And so, I mean, do, hours is is a short amount of time but to not even put two hours towards it is is mind-blowing
0: to do the bare minimum right uh, some i think potentially good news this week though let's we'll do this and then we'll pivot because we've got a special guest in studio today um bailey you and i were talking about the governor's executive order pertaining to real id
1: yes and i'll be quick on on the background on that so years ago the obama administration required states to update their identifications to real IDs um, if people wanted to use their state licenses and identifications um, to get into federal buildings or to travel or to do anything that requires federal interactions. Um, And even at that time, they were going to allow um, dollars aside for states to be able to update their systems, to be able to get adjusted to it. Oklahoma was like, nah. We're not going to do that. Um, And then the deadline came up and they said, no, we're not going to do it. And then they got an extension. And then it was like, no, we're not going to do it. Got another extension. And then the federal government recently within the past uh, few years said, okay, this is the final extension. If you don't do it, then Oklahomans just won't be able to use their IDs to get on planes or get in federal buildings and things. And so our legislature then was tasked with paying for updating our systems out of Oklahoma's pocket uh, to be able to, to get that going so Oklahomans can get that new ID. So now we're in the place of where the, the deadline has passed, so if people are going to, you know, get on planes and in federal buildings, they got to have that real ID. So there's a whole lot of folks across the state who need their licenses updated. So on top of there being a pandemic, uh, there's a huge backlog Uh, where people have been waiting months to be able to get their licenses updated to meet this new, uh, well, it's not new, but to to be in in standard with the the federal requirements on Real ID. And so since there's been such a huge backlog and it's been a headache for so many people, I'm sure that our state lawmakers were hearing so much about it. There were 44 uh, bipartisan lawmakers who signed a letter to Governor Stitt saying, hey man, we need some things done to make this process more efficient so we can end the backlog and get more people uh, licenses as as they need. Um, And that very next day, uh, Governor Stitt ordered an executive order um, that would allow TAG agencies to renew or replace ground uh, downgrade class A, B, or C commercial driver's license that would allow TAG agents to issue state identification cards if the individual has a valid expired suspended license, it would allow career techs to administer state written drivers uh, license exams. Uh, and then it would allow commercial driving academies to administer CDL driving examinations to the general public and not just their students. And so there were some barriers in place um, structurally that was slowing down the process, and the governor's executive order will help to remove those barriers to speed it up so more people can get their ID. So that's a great thing from Governor Stitt. So we're glad that he did that.
0: I'm excited to get a new ID. My photo is terrible. And if I'm going to get a new one, I might as well get one that I can actually use to fly, right?
2: Have I ever showed you my my first attempt at, you know, I travel a lot and I had to renew my passport a couple of years ago. So I had to get a new picture. Have I ever showed you my first uh, attempt at a new picture for my passport? I don't think so. Is bad? Uh, oh dude it's 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 rough Mine i mean it's really terrible too
0: i have like a hoodie and i hadn't shaved and it
2: looks like a watch list photo like it's uh, oh dude i yeah i hadn't shaved and you're not allowed to wear your mat your uh your mask you're not allowed to wear yours before masks god bless time before masks uh you're not allowed to wear your glasses and and i have chronically like bags under my eyes from years of inadequate sleep and my hair was all like jacked up and i had shaved and like my nose i mean it looks i look i i yeah i look like somebody who should who should not be allowed on a plane like even the guy taking the picture he was like he literally looked at me and was, like bro i think we may need to do that again <laughs> i was like if, a, if you've upset the guy at walgreens you know it's about of- he was like i don't know if that's the one you want to use <laughs> but anyway all right shall we uh shall we shall we Change topics and get to our special guest.
0: Yeah. So, uh, as we move into that, I'll say one other bill that we were going to talk about this week anyway. And so, this is a great segue. Uh, Senate Bill 560 um, from Senator Nathan Dom is allegedly about self defense. Um, it would basically protect people who were, in his language, fleeing a riot that if they drove into a crowd and killed somebody that they would not be liable because they were fleeing a riot
2: that's weird that doesn't that doesn't sound like a dom bill (laughs) i mean that does i mean senator dom is known for his like very like measured and reasonable and totally constitutional uh bills that he files every year so i'm surprised to see this coming from
1: him
0: Yeah, so this is actually one of a number of like anti-protest bills that have been filed this year. Uh, And so joining us today to talk about some of these bills is Ellie Page. And Ellie is the senior legal advisor with the International Center for -for Not-for-Profit Law in Washington, D.C. And she's also the founder of their U.S. Protest Law Tracker, which is a very handy tool and was quite eye-opening when I looked at it online. So, Ellie, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks, Andy. Happy to be here.
0: So glad for you to be here. Uh, and I'll say up front, and I'll remind you at the end, listeners, that we have a blog post from Ellie and one of her colleagues, who is a former Oklahoman, that is posted on our blog Um today, the same day that you were listening to this, I'm sure it'll be up there by then. And uh, that details all this information. So if you are someone who likes to go back and reread things, we've got you this time. Ellie, tell us a little bit about the International Center for Nonprofit Law.
3: Yeah, sorry, it's a, it's a mouthful. Um, but ICNL is an international organization, so we work in over 100 countries. To improve the legal environment that affects freedoms of peaceful assembly, association, expression, and civic participation. So, the U.S. is one of those hundred countries, um, and a large part of our work in the U.S. focuses on the right to peacefully assemble and sort of the laws that that affect that right. So, in that in that context, I mean, I think in starting in 2017, we noticed a number of these sort of state level initiatives uh, that would impact protesters. Um, and of course, that was 2017. That was the, the kind of context of the massive protests um, at the beginning of the the previous presidential administration, um, and so that's when we started the tracker uh, to monitor kind of these um, both at the state and federal level, new uh, proposed laws that would restrict protest rights.
0: So have you seen an increase over the last four years in the number of laws like this that would somehow restrict the the public's First Amendment right to assemble?
3: It has definitely been a durable trend over the past four years, um, I would say. Um, There have been sort of peaks and troughs, but the, um, well, not troughs, just peaks. (laughs) Um, But in the last three to four months, we have seen... Just an, by far and away, uh, the the single largest wave uh, of legislation uh, that that would restrict protest rights.
2: Can you can you walk us through just because like you know I mean I I joked earlier about actually this might have been before we started recording uh, just about the propensity of people in in government to pass laws that um, would seem at least to someone like me who has only the the barest working knowledge of the Constitution not to pass constitutional muster. Can you walk us through what what does the United States Constitution protect in terms of the right to assembly, protest, et cetera? What is it that like we're supposed to be allowed to do?
3: That is a great question. Um, I will preface this by saying that I am not necessarily a First Amendment sort of constitutional expert. Um, However, there are some basic sort of basic guidelines that um, and I'll also say that what there is of sort of Supreme Court precedent on this question of what what is protected by the First Amendment in the assembly context is kind of all over the map. Um, it's not super duper clear and it's not kind of, um, yeah, so at, the, at least as far as as um, the Supreme Court, but obviously the Constitution and the First Amendment explicitly protect the right to peaceful assembly and speech um, that generally, I mean, uh, encompasses broad freedoms when you're talking about uh, assembling in a public forum. Um, The the First Amendment also protects the right of the people to petition the government for grievances. So that's kind of bound up in your concept of assembly for the purpose of communicating to the government uh, issues that are of concern that, that you're seeking kind of redress for.
2: So this is like interesting to me because, you know, so as I'm listening to you talk, one of the words that stuck out to me was like public forum. And so, I mean, I don't know, like that makes me wonder, like there's a bill, I think this year uh, you referenced it in your blog post and like you wouldn't be able to protest in a street, right? So like what is considered a public, like when the founders wrote like public forum, were they thinking of like the Roman forum? Like was that one of the things that they were like looking back towards? ancient Rome and like, is that what they envisioned? Or did they envision like anywhere that's not your house? Like how do these, how, how do these terms? Like if you're, what I guess what I'm trying to say is if if a, a lawyer or a, a judge or a court is looking at this, how do they determine what these things mean?
1: I'd like to tack on to that question, like a specific example, because when Reverend William Barber protested at uh, his state capitol, um, he was barred out and arrested for trespassing. And so where are the boundaries of what is considered public to Scott's point? Because in that case, technically a capitol building is a public building and people showed up to protest and he was arrested, like what does that mean and how does that reconcile?
3: Right, right, That's a, those are great questions. Um, and I don't want to speak uh, for the founders, um, but I think certainly there are public spaces that are essential to the right um, to to the ability to kind of uh, to um, communicate concerns to your to your leaders and representatives. And the capital, at least the capital grounds, are an obvious example of that. Um, and I think the streets as well. I mean, the streets are historically kind of a a, a central location um both for sort of uh communicating publicly and there's this concept of when there are issues that are so vital um and it's it's so critically important to kind of raise public awareness about something that's happening um that that yes you have to acknowledge that sometimes protests and assembly may be a little inconvenient um that that you might be blocked, you might be in the streets in a way that, uh, that means someone has to take a detour. Um, so, I mean, international law acknowledges this, and I should say, I mean, the right to peaceful assembly is not just our constitutional right, it's a fundamental civil and political right under international law. Um, and, and within that right is this acknowledgement that protest does not, peaceful protest does not mean protest that isn't, um, inconvenient, that by its nature, it might be disruptive and disturbing, but that's part of um, that's part of where its power comes from.
1: I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's a key point: is that people want to be comfortable and they want folks to to make them feel good in protest. And if that's what's being accomplished, then is it really a protest? Right? Is it really raising the 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 conflict and the issue at hand? And so I appreciate you raising that important point. Uh, one question I wanted to to raise is the complications of what happened on January 6th with making sure that there's the First Amendment access while also keeping people protected. Can you talk about maybe the the challenges right now of, of how that has shaped the way people are thinking about the right to protest?
3: Right, I think it, it has been complicated, but, but you have to be clear that what happened at the Capitol building was not a protest, that that sort of violent insurrection goes way beyond the bounds of what is what was ever conceived under the, the First Amendment as protected. Um, the, the sort of peaceful rally down the street on Pennsylvania Avenue, yes, that was peaceful protest. And even some of the people that walked up Pennsylvania Avenue and were like peacefully praying and protesting sort of on the grounds, but not part of the violent insurrection, that, that is also kind of, that's protected conduct. Um, I think we've been extremely concerned that, that, uh, that the attack on the Capitol would be used by lawmakers to kind of fuel this this legislative trend that people would point to the attack and say, see, this is why we need more of these kind of uh, harsh penalties for people that um, damage property and and trespass and the like. Um, And and that's happened, I mean, at least uh, we know in in Florida, um, for instance, the the, uh, GOP lawmakers and the governor, um, who had promoted a bill last fall that was explicitly targeting racial justice protesters, um, but they chose to introduce, to formally introduce that bill the night after the Capitol attack, and sort of pointed to the the, the Capitol and said, "This is why this is why we need this bill." Um, but the truth is that kind of legislation, the kind of legislation we're seeing across the country and especially in Oklahoma, um, it's going to have a chilling effect on protest rights for people on the left and on the right. Like it's, it's the same first amendment that's being eaten away regardless of, of where you fall on the political spectrum.
2: So this may be a stupid question, but it seems like one that's probably really important, you know, and to your point and to Bailey's point earlier, like disturbance and disruption. So disturbance and disruption do not equal violence, right? Like that's like, they're, those things are not synonymous, but at what point like like what is, i mean like what is violence is it like pornography that you know it when you see it like is that like what is you know what i mean like at what point does at what point does a protest that is disruptive and disturbing on purpose because that's the point like when does does it become violent when there's violence against property does it become violent when there's violence against people and people are being harmed like, does it does it have to get to that point, or can it be violent before that? And like, that's what I and I'm, I'm like I said I I have I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> it's like what when when does when does when does it become violent?
3: Right. Yeah. So I think I mean there are I think it's important for the law to be clear about that question and to distinguish between violence against people and violence against property um and obviously these things this is unlawful conduct we're talking about so i'm i'm not saying and i that the first amendment doesn't say that states have no um no ability to regulate that kind of conduct um but what we're seeing is that i mean in all these the states where these bills are popping up that kind of conduct is already criminal there are already plenty of laws on the books that address um assault and battery and that address property damage and vandalism but these lawmakers are saying the penalty for that is gonna be, instead of um, vandalism being a misdemeanor, if you vandalize a a monument, it's a felony and you can go to prison for
1: 10 years. We're actually seeing that in Oklahoma City because our uh, district attorney charged um, folks who were, young folks, uh, with terrorism charges for busting a window of a building during a Black Lives Matter protest, and so, we definitely feel exactly what you're saying at home. Right, so that kind of just
3: draconian response and, and sort of uh, penalization of of conduct that's already unlawful, that's gonna have a, a, a chilling effect. It already has a chilling effect on sort of people's um, willingness to participate in the public sphere and to, to take to the streets to, to make themselves heard. So
0: let's talk a little bit about some of the other bills that are proposed here in Oklahoma. I think in your blog post, uh, you said there's like 10 separate bills that would grossly limit the people's first amendment rights here in Oklahoma. Um, Several of them appear to be authored by Representative Tom Gann. One that we kind of talked about would make it a felony to protest on a public street. And also, this is unrelated to Oklahoma, but one of my favorite bits of trivia knowledge about streets is about the curbs in washington dc that are all made of granite or most of them are made of granite and it's because the streets are considered federal property and so when we're talking about you know taking to the streets and that being a shared public space i always think of these fancy curbs in dc because they really are nice and they are impervious to ice and salt which is why they last so long anyway that has nothing to do with protest i just like uh street related knowledge um (laughs) furthermore um some other bills from Representative Gan, uh, House Bill fifteen sixty five would require public employees found guilty of unlawful assembly uh, that would be barred from future government employment. So, and you make this argument in the in your post that this could have had huge impacts on the teacher walkout from twenty eighteen. And I think there's a number of bills like this that, when I first saw them, I was like, you know, I'm sure this is about what's happened in the last year, right? However, knowing the legislature and some of the authors of some of these bills who were very upset by the teacher walkout a couple of years ago, uh, like almost personally offended, I can see these bills as being like, a, oh, well, here's how we stop them from expressing their First Amendment rights uh, and protesting. We make it illegal that they would lose their jobs. They could never work for the state again and they, you know, face fines and jail time and just like literally throw the book at them. Um, do, I guess my question in all of this is that are these bills like, is there anything about them that is unique to Oklahoma? Or are, we, are these some examples of, you know, what we often talk about in the show as being the copy and paste or model legislation that is being run in multiple states across the country?
3: Yeah, you know, I have to say, I, I think it, is the latter um, that we're seeing this is very much representative of the trend we're seeing across the country that these um new pel- penalties for blocking traffic the new kind of civil and criminal immunity for drivers who hit and um and potentially kill protesters that we've seen in a number of states um the again draconian penalties for vandalism um and even the the uh, 1565 proposal to, to strip state employees of um, of their jobs if they're convicted of unlawful assembly. That's that's something we've seen in a number of states as well. Um, there have been a couple of unique ones. I think 1578, uh, which was, that's a house bill proposed by Representative West, um, has a really remarkable um, prohibition on causing annoyance. Could you, could
1: you specify which West? Because we have four Wests. And so I want to make sure that the wrong West doesn't get attributed. <laughs> this was Rick West. Yes. Thank you. That's, that's an important,
3: uh, important distinction.
2: Representative Josh West is a friend of the show. We want to make sure it stays that way.
3: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies to Josh West for any confusion. Um, but 15, 16, 1578, again, prohibits causing annoyance, uh, at a public establishment during a quote unquote riot. Um, so it's, it's just a clear attempt to kind of criminalize speech that is, unpopular or disfavored. And this, this one in particular, I mean, there's just like very clear Supreme Court precedent um, that says you can't do this. Like that's a such subjective uh, and ridiculous standard um, to, to, to base your, uh, your regulation of someone's conduct based on uh, some unknown third party's perception of it and whether or not they're annoyed. Uh, and there's some there's some great quotes in that in that uh, Supreme Court opinion. It's from 1971, it's Coates versus Cincinnati, um, about just the, the fact that the state can't criminalize the exercise of the right of, of assembly just because it's exercise may be annoying to some people. Um so that that one has has really struck out stuck out to me. But yeah, on the whole, I think um, I would also flag Senate Bill 806 that uh, that by Senators Weaver and Worthen, um, which includes uh, it takes unlawful assembly and riot those offenses and and puts them uh, adds them to the underlying crimes for Rico penalty penalties um, so creating sort of uh, uh, um, new potential penalties for kind of organizations and people that are uh, that are working together that 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 um, are then ultimately convicted of these again very broadly defined crimes, and so that's that's definitely a trend we've seen nationwide as well. Is is um, initiatives that would target uh, organizations that are involved in uh, supporting protest activity, whether or not they're they're um, funders or or otherwise. So again, that, that has sort of even broader chilling impact, not only for protesters themselves but organizations that uh, that may use protests as uh as one of the, their their tactics and their toolkits
0: or even inviting people to attend a rally right if if the wrong i uh, say if the wrong person deemed that peaceful rally to be a riot um and someone wanted to you know take this the wrong way then anyone who shared you know the women's march or a black lives matter march or those kinds of things that might have been conducted peacefully uh, as we mentioned earlier when we've seen them um, labeled as something other than uh, a peaceful experience, and suddenly people are facing harsh legal penalties. And, uh, Ellie, you mentioned that Supreme Court case from 1971, and it strikes me that I that timing of that is probably not uh, just happenstance. That you know, in the wake of uh, civil rights marches and riots and rallies throughout the 1960s, certainly up into the late you know, 1968 was a tumultuous year um, that, that many of us are getting to relive right now, and or the last couple of years. Did we see a similar wave of proposed legislation in the late 60s, or early 70s, like what we're seeing right now?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, and that is, in fact, when we saw sort of the introduction of many of, of um, the state kind of anti-riot provisions Um, which if you go state by state, I mean, these are, these are criminal laws that are incredibly broad that give law enforcement so much discretion to say, oh, you're, you're a group of three people engaged in quote unquote, tumultuous behavior. Um, therefore you're, you're engaging in a riot and subject to these, um, these crazy penalties. So, yes, there, there was sort of a, a, a similar wave, I think you could say, um, in kind of state responses to. To, um, to protest at that time,
2: and kind of as a follow up to that, and I want to go back to uh, kind of pick, piggyback off that. In in the what you mentioned about the Supreme Court case in seventy one, I, I just looking at these, and I if you have researched all of these laws, that would be impressive. But I know you've got you've got a lot of things that you watch. Do these law are these things, particularly ones we're talking about in Oklahoma, are these things that are gonna that are gonna pass constitutional muster, or is there already like? case law and and like is it is it clear that like most of this is just stuff like you can't do or are there going to be you know are we looking at five years of litigation to get to the supreme court to figure out whether these laws are constitutional or not
3: yeah it's a great question i think some of them and and particularly the uh um the uh the the rick west wanted to be clear on the, the sponsor. That, the Rick West bill about causing annoyance, I mean, that pretty clearly is not going to pass muster. So that could um, be subject to a facial challenge. There are a few others that I think have um, potential problems just around vagueness, where it's not clear um, what kind of conduct is is being targeted. Um, that's that's a, a clear constitutional problem. People need to know sort of what the, the, the standards are, what the, the legal limits are um, when they are when they're exercising their their First Amendment rights. Um, I think others, it's a it's it's a question um, as far as the the penalties for blocking traffic. I mean, like I said, the state does have some has has the ability to um, to regulate that um, when it comes to uh, blocking traffic. Whether or not they can make that a felony. <laughs> um, is is I think another question, and I I, compl- I obviously I defer to you all as far as what the the kind of political um, uh, potential is of these bills to to move one way or another.
2: So if you, I'm curious about the traffic one. Just like kind of playing a like an ex, a thought experiment, I guess, up my head. So can can the state say, okay, you can't just come together like spontaneously and block 23rd street, which is one of our main, like it's a big street in town, but do they have to say, if you want to get a permit to protest and block 23rd street, they have to allow that? Like, is that, do you see what I'm saying? Like, is, can they, can they penalize it if you do it without following some process, but then also be required to lay out a process by which you can do that, like, does that make any sense at all?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think I see what you're saying, and and certainly if you do provide a permitting process. Um, then that provides kind of a legal avenue, and and a lot of these bills say if you assemble without lawful authority in X Y Z place, um, and so that's that's sort of the lawful lawful authority you could have if you've gone through a permitting process, and um, but whether or not a state has to. Uh, allow a permit for any place like i don't the state is not required for instance to allow people to protest on the highway um, they don't have to provide a permitting process for that the flip side of this is the ability to have spontaneous protest is is vital to the right that is like inherent your ability to when something happens and people need to respond immediately like that is that's that's cut and dry including in international law that's Um, that's something that people have to be able to do without going through a lengthy permitting process.
2: When something tragic happens, you shouldn't have to wait six weeks to get your permit before you can like respond with justifiable outrage.
0: Well, I, so I think as we wind down listeners, you want to make sure you have information and access on how to find more information about these bills and others, uh, As I mentioned earlier, the blog post from Ellie and her colleague Abby Henderson will be on our website, which is letsfixthis.org slash blog. You can find that there. I will also link to it in the show notes. So whatever app you're listening to this podcast in, you should be able to find it quickly and easily right there. Um, And then if you wanna take action, I will also add a section to our website. If you haven't already looked at our bill tracker or legislation tracker we have, with all the bills related to elections, ethics, um, initiative petitions, those kinds of things. Uh, I will add a section for protest bills on there so you can find the specific bills that we've talked about and some of the other ones that we didn't have time to mention today. Uh, And from that, you should be able to click on who the author is and we've updated our legislator contact info spreadsheet, which is also on our website under the resources tab. Lots of things clearly go to the website. You will find all this information. It will all be linked in, you know, at the end of that blog post as well. So I don't want you to click around a whole bunch to find the stuff you need. If you care about this at all, if you want to be involved um, right now, all the bills are not all, most of the bills are still before a committee. And when you go to the legislation tracker, it will show you what step it is. Uh, on the way so that you can contact the members of those committees for some of the bills, like Senator Dom's bill we mentioned earlier. It's already passed out of committee and headed to the floor. uh, And so you'll be able to see that uh, as well. In those cases, reach out to your state senator, your state house rep, and let them know how you feel about it uh, and your concerns. I think, as I'll be honest, as Scott alluded to earlier, some of the authors here tend to file these bills as um you know de facto press releases and as a show so they can they can do a mailer next election saying you know i tried to fight for your rights and safety and law and order whatever they know they're not going to get through but just because they seem ludicrous or they don't think they're going to get through doesn't mean we shouldn't try right uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to stop them. That's what I'm saying. Um, we You can't take it for granted because you never know what sneaks through. And we don't want to leave anyone with the idea that somebody didn't care, right? Uh, I know Ellie and her team uh, will be advocating for these from their perspective, but it always makes a huge difference for folks right here at home in Oklahoma who care about these bills and affects us, right? Ellie doesn't live here, it doesn't affect her directly um, the way that it affects you and me. So if you care about this, We encourage you, find out more, um, take action. Even a short email or quick phone call can go a long way. If you'd like to um, find out more about the International Center for Nonprofit Law, Ellie, how can they find out more information?
3: Uh, You can go to our website, which is www.icnl.org. should have all the information you need about the organization and our, our activities around the world and in the U.S.,
0: Excellent. And the, the map with your U.S. protest law tracker is super cool just because you can quickly like scroll over all the states and they're color coded. You can see who has already enacted some. It's the it's the state you think it's going to be by and large um, and uh, and see how many are proposed and pending uh, across the country. Uh, it's really interesting. It's always interesting. As much as we focus on stuff here at home, it's cool to see how we connect to things around the country. Ellie. Thank you so much for being here. We've really enjoyed it.
3: Thanks so much to you all.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Bailey and Scott, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you.
0: Wouldn't miss it. All right, listeners. Look, I can even play the music on the outro. I'm so excited about this. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Next week, uh, please remember that Representative uh, Gann has a bill that would basically allow evictions to occur and kick them back into high gear in the midst of a pandemic, it's a bad bill. Um, if you follow Bailey on social media, I'm sure she will be sharing about it. She is at Bailey M Perkins. You can find her there. Scott is at SC Melson. I'm at Andy. OKC. next week. We'll be back with another wrap up as we near the end of the month. We're getting closer and closer to committee deadlines. Um, the heat's on and, uh, Between now and then, I hope your heat is on. Stay warm in the midst of this historic blizzard we're going to have. Have a great week.